Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. Here with me, as always, is my friend and colleague, Mickey Inslicht. Hello, everyone. I'm uh, looking forward to drinking a beer. It's been a bloody hot day today, and uh, I have not even drank even one little smidgen of beer <laughs> at all. <laughs> because wow. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for this beer gasm to... Uh, I want to. I want to have the beer gasm on air. That was. Uh, <laughs> that's what our listeners want. Um, do you uh, do you want to tell our listeners what we are drinking today? Yes, I would. Uh, I'm really excited about this beer. This is a uh, a beer from my favorite brewery in Toronto called uh, Bellwoods Brewery. So if anyone uh, is visiting Toronto, I highly recommend it. Check it out. Wonderful patio, and this beer is called Cat Lady. Uh, it's a double dry hopped IPA. Um, it's a large bottle, 500 milliliters, uh, so a little bit over a pint, and it's 7.2% alcohol by volume, Yoel. I don't think you uh, you might have realized that. I did not realize what I was getting into. No, and we had to drink two of them, so a liter of beer, at least. Jesus. Yes, Jesus. All right. Shall we, uh, shall we drink? First sip. Cheers. Mmm. Summary. Oh, that's nice. Delicious. Very citrusy. Yeah. Oh, that's and, great. Uh, Quite bitter, but not not over the top. It's not like a crazy, um, like West Coast IPA. It is not. It is very nuanced. Very nice. Okay, before we get started um, with the main topic of our episode, we have a little bit of follow up. Um, so, in our first episode, we were drinking uh, a sour beer from Collective Arts, and uh, the the beer, the kind of beer, was spelled G O S E, and I claim that was pronounced Hose. And that's actually not true. It's pronounced Goza, uh, because this is a German sour beer, not a Belgian sour beer, which would be pronounced Trüse. So I was wrong, and our listener, um, our listener Stephen Emrich, was right. Uh, so I was corrected about that on Twitter, and I appreciate the feedback from Stephen, and uh, thanks for letting us know. The other thing I wanted to mention is uh, that uh, my friend Mike Sargent um, got in touch with us on Twitter and mentioned that uh, he has an episode of his podcast, Tatter, uh, which is also about free speech, except he has a really um, kind of amazing guest, Stanley Fish, who's like a well-known, um, yeah, what, what does he do exactly? You know, I'm not sure. I, I I first started following him when he wrote a column for the New York Times in the early 2000s. And I loved his column. I thought it was so erudite and, well, you know, just really clear. Um, and I also, I listened to the, <clears throat> excuse me, I listened to the podcast, the Tatter podcast, and I thought it was wonderful. I thought, uh, I mean, <laughs> way more informed than us and less drunk. Yeah. Yeah. Way more informed, way higher production values. Uh, he also has an amazing radio voice, which I really find to be kind of unfair. <laughs> sounds great. <laughs> anyway, so definitely check that out if you want more about uh, free speech or if you just want uh, like a really well-made, thoughtful podcast about, he mainly talks about politics-relevant stuff, but not exclusively. So the latest episode that I just listened to was about how psychologists and other scientists use language. Um, and I was called out for overclaiming, actually, in that podcast. So... That was fun. You were called out for overclaiming. I was called out for my overclaiming title. He said he he said my title conveyed too much certainty. Your title in the uh, paper? of a paper. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. see. So you got schooled a couple uh, times about um, beer, yeah. about titles. I'm wrong about everything. Is, is the <laughs> lesson here? <laughs> All right. So so that concludes the follow up. Um, and our main topic today is the reproducibility crisis, and our jumping off point for talking about this is a paper that came out 
recently in PNAS. This was an opinion piece called, Is Science Really Facing a Reproducibility Crisis? And do we need it to? And this was by uh, a researcher named Finelli. Yeah, I think Danielle Finelli. Danielle Finelli. That's right. And uh, I thought this was an interesting place to start discussing um, what we think is going on, mainly in, in psychology, because that's our expertise, but also maybe in science more broadly around reproducibility. So, Mickey, what did you think of the paper? Um, I actually didn't like it very much. Uh, I felt it um, it diminished, uh, I think, the severity of the problem. Um, I mean, it made a number, a number of arguments that, you know, maybe, you know, fraud is not as common as we might expect, um, that the use of questionable research practices is not as common as we might expect, um, and even when they're used, they might not be as problematic for drawing inferences. Um, and then uh, I think the final point... Uh, um, that Finelli was making was that this narrative of a crisis uh, is actually hurtful. It hurts. It hurts attempts to to correct science to make science better. Uh, it might lead to nihilism. Is kind of the the, the 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 what I took from it. Actually, you know, I'll say of all the arguments, that's the one that I found most persuasive. Um, but the rest of it, I felt uh, I didn't like that much. I felt maybe it's because I'm I'm, I'm so you know, like a tunnel vision and only seeing things through psychology and social psychology specifically, uh, that I felt the arguments fell short. And I think partly because Finelli was focusing on science-wide. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm certain that s some scientists are faring better than others. Um, so if you look at it at a broad lens, I suspect, you know, one can make an argument like this. Well, the question is, are the problems in psychology so evident because we're the ones really looking for them? Right. So before we started looking, we might have said nothing to see here in the same way that lots of other scientific disciplines are saying, oh, yeah, no big deal. It's those psychologists have the problem, not us. But are they making a real effort to test the reproducibility of the findings that they think are reliable? Right. So like one hard lesson that that I feel like a lot of psychologists have learned is like, you think this stuff is totally real and there's a massive literature showing it and there's no way that this could all be false positives. And then they do the big multi-site replication attempt and it turns out that they don't find the effect that they expected. Yeah. I mean, the argument that, oh, well, who cares? One replication failure, two replication failures, five replication failures. Um, we've got a body of literature that's, you know, 600 studies large. So who cares about a few? And we should expect a few. Um, I think that argument was put to rest a little bit with, yeah, these big multi-site replications. Um, but, you know, before we get too deep, UL, I wonder if we should maybe even define what, what we're talking about. You know, give a, give a little context for um, some of the listeners who, who like science and like psychology, but might, might not know exactly what we're talking about. Um, so what is the... You, you call it the reproducibility crisis. I've heard it more uh, referred to as the replication crisis. But what, you know, what is it? So to me, this started uh, around 2011, 2012 with a, a series of events. Um, first, uh, a paper by Daryl Bem, uh, a really respected social psychologist in JPSP, uh, the best field journal, purporting to show that ESP exists. And he used methods that were like very standard 
uh, statistical methods that were very standard at the time. And this looked like a methodologically rigorous, well-done demonstration of ESP. Uh, so that's thing one. Hey, but uh, what, what's the problem with that? What you mean, like, why can't <laughs> ESP exist? <laughs> no, I mean... Obviously, ESP doesn't exist. That's why. <laughs> okay, so something that we haven't... I mean, I would say this. <clears throat> I don't think ESP exists. I, I have very little doubt that it exists. But I'm not going to say it's impossible. So I, I have, like, a, you know, a one in a million or maybe one in a billion percent chance that, you know, this, this will... This is real. Um, but the powers are so low that I think the idea is... Um, we need extraordinary evidence to show it, and I don't think anyone thinks that BEM in this paper you know, had that quality of evidence. Right, so I guess the problem is, if using standard best practices, you're able to give convincing evidence of something on which people have an extremely low prior. Yeah, it's possible that that you know, prior is wrong, but it's probably more likely that there's something wrong with the best practices. That's right. the thinking. And I think that's a conclusion that most people drew from that, not we should start believing in ESP. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is a 2012 psych science paper by uh, Simmons, Nelson, and Simonson. I think it was 2011, no? Oh, yeah, you're right. It was yeah. 2011. Mm. It was totally 2011. Um, the uh, So this paper, False Positive Psychology, showed that by exploiting uh, degrees of freedom in how you do analyses and not reporting that you've exploited them, uh, you can dramatically increase your false positive rate. And they had a very nice demonstration that uh, listening to When I'm 64 made listeners chronologically younger. Yeah, um, so an impossible finding. An impossible find. Well, <laughs> well, let's keep an open mind. <laughs> yeah, so so the idea is, you know, there's things that you can do with your analyses, um, all of which are defensible, um, that allow you to take a lot of bites at the apple of statistical significance, right? So we all want P less than 0.05. That's what's publishable. So try it with a covariate versus without the covariate. Try dropping these people as outliers versus not. Try dropping this condition versus including it. And these are all things that, like, I think many people, I don't want to say all people, but many people thought that was just an acceptable part of, like, how you do psychological science pre-replication crisis. And... I think there was always some degree of like, we realized it's not great, but I don't think we appreciated how much it can increase type one error rates. And I think we had the kind of vague idea of, especially, you know, if you run like multiple studies, you know, doesn't that help in any way other people are going to try and replicate this. So, you know, if it's not right, then it'll, you know, it'll come out on the wash anyway. So it's not such a big deal. Right. And, and so we took this attitude that was like pretty cavalier towards um, you know, violating what a statisticians would say um, you have to do in order to be able to interpret null hypothesis significance testing. So like a methodologist or a statistician will tell you, um, if you do these tests like in an exploratory way, let's try this, let's try that, um, then you're invalidating the p-value, right? You have to have the analysis plan beforehand to say like, these are the tests we're going to do. And the results are then going to inform, you know, what we think of the hypothesis. You can't just kind of keep going, trying different stuff. So those are the, the first uh, two papers, I suppose. And then the last thing, um, which is a bit odd because it doesn't really, it doesn't have to do with like p-hacking, which, which lots of people did and didn't really think of as especially bad. Um, but this, that last thing is fraud. So there were a 
few high profile fraud cases that came out around that time. And I think that started people thinking just generally that there might be something really wrong with the field. And it does speak to the lack of replications that like Diederik Stoppel, for example, was able to publish fraudulent findings for like a decade or more and nobody ever noticed that now maybe he got really lucky and happened to fake things that were actually true but i kind of doubt that nobody's intuitions are that good right yeah so, so what it reflects is like when people fail to replicate him those failures weren't getting published right, right. there seems like the, there, there seems to be i'm hearing what, what the, the term that people use for this um some sort of bias to accept the first uh, demonstration of something as the truth. Um, so Diedrich Stoppel, who, you know, a fraudster who what attracted 40 plus or 50 plus papers, um, massive fraud. Um, uh, you know, once he published a study on any one topic, uh, it didn't matter if other people tried and could replicate because the truth was already out there. You know, the, uh, the first study set the scene for everything else. Um, right. And I think it, de-incentivized people from actually running replications because there wasn't a place, um, there'd be lower impact. Um, and I mean, you know, when, and I think even the authors themselves weren't sure what to do. It's like, I, I'm not sure, is it me? Did I do something wrong? Um, but I think, you know, the egregious cases are the ones where, you know, the auth replicating authors will replicate a paper uh, or replicate a study like multiple times, trying like their best, you know, really earnestly trying to get an effect. You seem to extend it. Um, and they just can't do it. So at some point they're like, okay, I just don't, I just don't believe this phenomenon anymore. Uh, and I think knowing that is, is worthwhile. And, and it was very, very hard to get those papers out. Right. Right. So, so those three things combined, I, I think changed a lot of people's thinking about, you know, where we were as a field. So I think, my default in graduate school was we've discovered a lot of crazy stuff or stuff that sounds crazy, um, but it's true. Um, and certainly like we read critically and we would look for confounds and stuff like that. But we had kind of a, a default assumption that if it comes out in a journal article that it's, you know, that effect is probably real. And then people started really asking, is that something that we can rely on? And how much past work does that call into question maybe even large bodies of research that that we thought were solid yeah yeah i mean from my experience as well in grad school yeah there were like these i mean i think we were enamored uh uh you know social psychology's most calling cards the power of the situation also the power of small things small situational differences having big impacts um so then that's what our field produced um, these small little tweaks, small little change of wording, uh, font changes, um, you know, seeing a word, you know, uh, you know, uh, presented to you subliminally, um, that could have an impact on your feelings, on your behavior, on your thoughts. And because it was kind of baked in, it was like part of the, the motto of social psychology. We, I mean, we just believed it. Um, but I think that all changed, uh, in, you know, 2011, 2012, um, when these, yeah, I, mean, I think that false positive psychology paper, it just, demonstrated how you know something impossible can appear to be possible um and that was such a brilliant move because you know essentially it's, you know it's kind of like a, a reductio ad absurdum you know like here is the most absurd thing you can imagine and look we get significance so then what else 
you know, uh, might be a false positive. That, you know, we don't think a priori. So, you know, yeah, ESP or psychic abilities, we don't believe, so whatever. But what things that sound reasonable um, should we not believe anymore? And, you know, for me, it, um, I mean, it caused like a tailspin, right? I mean, like, I, you know, you're just not sure what, what's, you know, what's solid. It sounds like we, uh, we don't buy what I think is the most important argument in the finale paper, which is that, you know, the reproducibility that we see in psychology is not any different from what we would expect from normal scientific self-correction. Um, that is, you know, we recognize that some published findings are going to turn out to be false. Um, we're not going to have a 0% uh, type 1 error rate and that science over time, uh, you know, we, we find those false positives and we discover that those things aren't true and we take it out of the textbooks and whatever. And that, you know, if you see some replication failures, that's that's normal. That's science working as it should. That I, I think it's fair to say that's kind of the argument that he puts forward in the paper. And he has some references to, you know, specific projects uh, like the reproducibility project where they tried to reproduce 100 social personality and cognitive psych studies. And he's, he cites some other papers that say like, well, you know, like how you interpret that reproducibility rate can be different depending on like different assumptions that you make or whatever. Basically saying it's not just your big deal. Um, and it sounds like you think that's not right. So, yeah, I just don't buy the arguments. I mean, I, I think maybe these arguments hold better for, for physics or chemistry, which feels I know very little about. Um, but it certainly does not, uh, in my estimation, uh, hold for psychology where, uh, yeah, lots of, lots of, lots of sources of data that we have problems. It's not just the reproduci reproducibility project. It's also, you know, these uh, massive uh, multi-site replications. Right. right. Um, where we have, you know, I guess probably the most famous one, the one that is, you know, I, I was involved with and I was, uh, um, it's close to my heart. It's on the topic of ego depletion, which I actually just talked about, uh, well, actually talked about the topic of self-control uh, to a bunch of alumni um, right before this podcast. Um, and I mentioned the replication crisis as well. Um, but this massive replication involved 24 labs around the world trying to replicate one specific paradigm. Um, and critically, um, these 23 or 24 labs, depending on how you count, um, they gave their prior, you know, estimates of how likely, you know, this study was to work. Okay. And out of the 24 labs, 23 of them thought this is a good test of, of the ego depletion effect. This, this notion that self-control wanes with use. Um, and so 23 to 24 thought this is a good test. Roy Baumeister, the originator, the originator of the theory, also thought, at least, you know, uh, at the beginning, there was also a good test of the theory. And it produced zero. It produced nothing. Um, by that, I mean, uh, data was collected, stats were, were, were run, but you know, the, the basic effect was not confirmed. And I think that was a wake-up call as well for many of us. Because that's like, hey, here's a body of research that is got 600 studies, empirical studies that support it in fields, you know, in, in every, in every branch of psychology, in management, in business, in neuroscience, um, and it's everywhere. Um, it's, you know, it's known by the lay public. And, uh, you know, at least one, one study, 
uh, again, replicated with massive power, could not be replicated. And that casts cast doubt about the whole theory, casts doubt about like how replicable are other studies, in, not just in ego depletion, but other, other fields more generally. So how is it possible that an entire field, like how many publications are there on ego depletion? Hundreds? I mean, I've heard, so the... There's a meta-analysis done in 2010, and there were 200 studies at that point. Um, but the number I've heard more recently is about 600 studies. So there are 600 studies uh, on ego depletion now, and the vast majority, I mean, 90, probably 95% are supporting uh, the existence of this phenomenon. Right. So how do you have a literature of 500 papers that purport to demonstrate an effect if there's no effect there to be demonstrated. Yeah, it's a fucking mystery, man. <laughs> Maybe it's not that much of a mystery. Uh, I mean, you know, they're all, we know about, I mean, I, I think there's a, there, there are two main sources, right? We've talked about one source, which is this, you know, use of questionable research practices. Um, so that are these kind of tricks and cheats and things that are cutting corners and, you know, things that were previously accepted, but now we know that they actually... Um, at least statistically, lead us astray. Uh, so that's one thing. The second thing, uh, and it, it, it's possible it's more problematic, is this concept called publication bias. This is the idea that um, journals, authors, uh, editors, reviewers um, do not publish null results. So results that you know do not confirm an hypothesis do not end up in the literature, or a tiny fraction of the total number of null results ends up in the literature. Um, so imagine you run, you know, 4,000 ego depletion studies. I'm just making up numbers here. Imagine we run 4,000 ego depletion studies all around the world. Um, and if I told you that of those 4,000, 600 were published and 600 were successful, well, you'd be a lot less impressed. You'd be, well, you know, 600 out of 4,000 um, is not showing much. Um, so we don't know this, so, 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 so we don't have a, de a denominator. <laughs> we don't know how many studies are actually run. And it's actually really, really hard to estimate how, how many studies are out there in the file drawer. Right. So if a field is, or an area, I should say, as big as ego depletion might be illusory, that, that really calls into question many, many findings in social psychology that we think are well-established, right? So I think any by any reasonable standard, you'd think if it's like 300 plus papers showing this effect, yeah, I can take that to the bank, right? Mm -hmm. I feel comfortable teaching that to undergrads. And I think here is where uh, the Finelli argument breaks down for me. So I, I think that like self-reports of how often do you engage in QRPs uh, I don't know what to conclude from that, right? Like, do, do people have good insight? Maybe they do it and forget. Um, I know that I can't remember in my earlier work every stage of what I did in the analyses, right? So I have a vague sense of like, oh yeah, did we terminate that one early because it was done, right? But like, I don't, I don't keep records of that stuff, right? So people's self-reports are going to be inaccurate. Um, so I think the proof is in, are we replicating things that we should be replicating? And there, Finale can point to um, the reproducibility project, but I don't actually think that's the best thing to look at. So to me, the best thing to look at are these large-scale replication efforts where there's a protocol that's designed ahead of time, it's carried out simultaneously by many labs around the world, put all the results together, and then you see what came out. So this may be like a, a incomplete list, but they have a list of 
eight here um, that are either published or in press. And these are effects that are selected because of their importance, right? These are things that have been influential, highly cited, um, that people have built on. And of these, two replicated, um, but one of them replicated only uh, kind of because of a confound and how the analyses were done. So we have eight high-profile findings of which six did not replicate. And I think that, you know, indicates... a. I don't. I don't know if you you can argue about whether crisis is the word that you want to use, but there's definitely a problem there. Like if this is normal science, it seems like our expectations of like normal science need to be. <laughs> to me. I will. I mean, it's normal science in the sense that we're engaging in science now to correct the record, and you know we always hear like you know every undergrad here say science is self-correcting. It's the only epistemology that allows for this. Um, so it's happening. But I mean, the, the thing that makes me sad and and like. Uh, makes me like less excited about my job is that what the fuck man like why what took us so long like you know psychology is not a particularly old field and so and social psychology is not it's even younger um but we, you know, we've been around for a few decades um and you know i guess i would have liked you know when i entered the field for this shit to, be, to have been sorted out already um because right now it seems like um I mean, from my perspective, I've got a, I've got a particularly, I think, pessimistic perspective on, on at least the past, is that yeah, we're we're built on quicksand. Uh, we, I mean, there are clearly there are replicable phenomena, and there, and there are known you know effects that we have, especially in disciplines outside of social psychology. Um, but even within social psychology, there there are, there are there are powerful effects. I don't want to denigrate all of it, um, but there are so many foundational effects. So many important effects that seem like bullshit now. Um, and it's, you know, it's almost like we have to start over. And I think that's what we're doing. I, I think we're, we're, we're building from, from the ground up. And it's frustrating. It really is frustrating. So, you know, the, literally the past two years in my, in my lab, you know, we, we, we do a number of things. But um, one project that I've been engaged in with a student, a poor student, um, uh, is trying to build up ego depletion from the ground up, like starting from scratch, saying, okay, you know, I, I believe there's a phenomenon here. I believe we get tired. I think almost all of us believe that we get tired. And then when we get tired, our cognitive systems are somehow impaired. Um, so we're trying to bottle that in the lab. And we're having a really, really hard time doing it. Um, we can get nice effects uh, on manipulation checks. So we can get people to be tired. We can get them to work on stuff that is like really frustrating and effortful and difficult and, and they can't stand it. Um, but to actually show downstream effects on cognition, especially on cognitive control, we're like mixed results. I mean, we had the last, and I almost wish we, I, I, I want to be done with this. So I almost want like to have all my results be negative at this point because I'm just, tired of it and it just so happened our last results are kind of like oh there's something suggestive here so we're gonna follow it up but i'm like i'm just tired of it um and that's you know i think that's where i'm at uh where it's just it's just frustrating i think that is uh, a great place to take our break um i want to talk more about we've been talking for the most part in kind of like an abstract uh academic way about like you know, what are the causes and consequences of this? But of course, you know, for people who are working in the field, it's personal, right? It, it 
really can be threatening to feel like you've devoted your life to something that is uh, mostly false positives and, you know, selective publication, right? Yeah. So, so I, I think that um, that's something that I want to talk about, but I want to take a break first. So Wait, I ho hold on a second. Yes. Uh, I, I'm going to call you out. On my drinking. <laughs> I know I, um, I only drank half this beer. I think, you know, there was someone who tweeted. Hashtag one beer in bar. <laughs> one beer in bar to UL. Because in our first episode... I guess he, Yoel, you know, offhand said, oh, I didn't even finish my beer. So Yoel has gotten, we have these big beers. These are big ones. Um, but I've got like a tiny little amount left in my glass. And Yoel's got, I would say, slightly less than half a glass. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. The difference between you and me, Mickey, is I'm not going to let a stranger on the internet <laughs> shame me into drinking one. <laughs> but I'll shame you. I'm not a stranger. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But you were in a frat. I just feel like this, <laughs> this is all part of the same thing. All right. Well, I'm going to fucking drink this thing. Yeah. No, no. I'm going to drink more. I'm going to drink more. I'm just going to do it at my own rate, damn it. notes before we uh, we get back to our, our regular content. Um, just a reminder to, if you enjoy the show, please uh, rate and review us on iTunes. We've gotten some ratings and reviews already, and that's very exciting. Um, somebody named Lawyer Bobbert said that I was his second favorite guest on Very Bad Wizards after Paul Bloom. So <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it, we have good news for this loyal listener because I think Paul Bloom will be visiting us uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, yeah, we're we're all very excited about that. Um, and uh, yeah, so if you enjoy the podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes. It uh, it helps other people discover the show somehow. I it, it affects something about the iTunes rankings. I don't know, but it's good for us. So uh, yeah, do it, please. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is uh, to contact us on Twitter at 4beerspod. You can mention us or DM us. You can also email us at 4beers at gmail.com. Our website, as always, is 4beers.fireside.fm. And I'd also like to give a special thank you uh, to David Pizarro, who's been helping us a, a bit with the audio. So if you find that the audio sounds better, all credit uh, is due to David and his uh, audio magic skills, and also to uh, Joshua Ball, uh, Mickey's brother-in-law, who wrote our theme song. And uh, I really, I thank him in my head every time I listen to that theme music because it's really nice. Yeah, it's kind of funny how you know the more you listen, you're like, oh, this is this is our song now. It just kind of be be became our theme. It's so cool. Yeah, yeah, it really is cool. Yeah. How are you liking the beer, by the way? I think it's great. Yeah, I th I think uh, you know the Taxoplasma gondi that was inserted into every bottle of beer is uh, making a, me a little loopy. Um, no, but this is I think the best beer we've had. 
maybe the the Miller High Life. Uh, you know, it is the champagne of beer. <laughs> the champagne of beer. No, but this is really good. This is uh, my favorite of, uh, so far. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great pick. Um, how widely do they distribute these? You know, I think uh, Bellwood Brewery is just a, lo- a local brew pub. I think about a, a bigger outfit in the past two years. They got a, a greater brewing capacity, um, but they're still, I think, local. I mean, probably Southern Ontario. Um, but you know, loyal listeners, you you can come visit us and uh, and uh, you can get your beer at, uh, at you know the brewery directly. That's right. And also, I wanted to just say, I'm going to throw this out there. I haven't you know okay, I haven't gone to your okay for this, Joel, but I'm willing for if anyone wants to give us beer to donate beer, uh, I'll drink it. Uh, so just give us beer, send us beer. Um, we will drink it on air, and thank you. <laughs> You're going to drink just whatever random stranger <laughs> sends you in the mail. <laughs> as long as it's not the champagne of beer, uh, I'll be happy. I can't believe you're hitting on High Life right now. <laughs> you're going to be barred from entering the U.S. They're going to stop you at the border. Uh, like I said, it was cut in our last episode, but it's just beer-flavored water is what that stuff is. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cut that again. <laughs> it's not I won't tolerate that. All right. So um, we're, we are, in the second segment, going to get uh, a little more personal. Because as, as we mentioned before the break, um, there are scientific consequences to our changing beliefs about reproducibility, but also as people who are working in this field, it affects us personally. Um, and I think it's, uh, I like to hear this, like how, what are people's personal stories? Like how did your beliefs change? How are you doing things differently? And also maybe how did it cause you to reevaluate, you know, what you're doing with your life, Mickey? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I also agree. I think, I think, I don't think we hear that enough. I think we hear, uh, I mean, we hear about, you know, online, about people changing practices, and, and you hear, you see a lot of learning going on. I mean, it's been actually really fun and interesting for the past five years. Like, I've learned so much about statistics and inference and uh, philosophy of science and, and really the way to think about experiments. That's been super fun. That's been great. Um, I wish I learned some of that before. Um, but that's been the, the positive. But I haven't heard as much of, you know, not too many personal stories of how people have, how they've been impacted, how they've been affected. Um, so maybe that's what we're going to do now, maybe reveal a little bit. I mean, I think I, I kind of expressed my, really my anger and frustration, I guess, before the break. Um, that's an odd, I guess. I don't, know if I, I don't think I expected to, to express anger. Um, more sadness. Um, I mean, for me, uh, you know, this is my passion. This is, I mean, this is uh, this is a real calling. I know it sounds fucked up and cliche or something like that, but I just think academia is made for my mind. Um, I, I'm lucky I stumbled onto this, and and it just it works for me. Um, and I just, you know, I used to wake up every morning and be so passionate about you know work, and I'd, I'd be excited to wake up to, to work on new stuff. Really, I mean, truly. And it hasn't been like that. Uh, for a while now. And that's been like that for a few years. Um, now, some of this could just be, you know, age. You know, we're just getting older. I'm, I'll be 46 in a few weeks. Um, and I guess it's normal that the passion I had as a 30-year-old, uh, you know, it'll be hard to maintain that for, for you know, for many, many years. So it's probably, probably just, you know, getting older, maybe being a bit more jaded, you know, been there, done that kind of thing. Um, 
but I don't think it's just that. I think it's um, realizing that a lot of the stuff that I worked on in the past, you know, I just no longer believe in. I no longer like I won't I won't talk about them anymore. Right. Um, there's a whole you know, my, the first part of my career um, on, you know, stereotype threat and stigma. Um, I don't I mean. I moved on for, for a number of reasons, you know, mostly just because I was, you know, I'd lost interest and wanted to work on other things and I'd got interested in other things. Um, but, uh, but I'm just not sure anymore. I'm just not sure about how solid that stuff is. And I, and I want to talk about stuff that I'm sure about. I'm a scientist and I, and, you know, you know, I understand as a scientist, one, one needs to embrace uncertainty. One needs to realize that we're dealing with many, many moving parts. You know, we have to be humble, you know, in, in the face of our data. Um, but at least we should we should be able to talk with some confidence about some of the studies we've run. And I just no longer feel that way, at least about some of the stuff. Um, so I still talk about ego depletion, for example. Um, but I mean, I have a weird relationship with ego depletion because I was always, to some extent, a, a bit of a critic. Like I, my my criticism was 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 theoretical in nature, but I was always like I had this kind of antagonistic relationship with it. Um, and I also think there's something re I still, and I'm, I'm just stupid, I guess, but I still think there's something there. I still think there's something real there. So that's why I'm hitting my head against the wall and, and, and getting my student to do this work and, you know, bless him that he's doing it. <laughs> How's Lynn? I know you're not listening to this podcast, but you deserve so much credit for all the work you've done. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's it just, it's sad for me, you know, that I, that, yeah, that I, that I can't talk about this old stuff and, uh, yeah, it's just a loss of yeah, a loss of meaning, loss of like, uh, yeah, some something has something has been diminished in my life. Um, yeah, and for for I don't want to say that depression is a big word, um, and I don't think I was depressed, but I was certainly down. Um, I was certainly burnt out. Um, yeah, I was not feeling it. I was not feeling good, um, and yeah. Is it? I feel like a lot of people have gone through that of having this feeling of like I've given so many hours to this and now I don't know how much I can believe any of it and just like wanting to take a break. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, so I actually I think I just tweeted about this last week. I got a lot of retweets for some reason um, that I, I just mentioned that I made it as a personal decision in my life to uh, to stop traveling. Uh, I mean, uh, traveling for work, at least for a year. I mean, I, I allowed myself two trips, although I've only gone on one so far. Um, and part of that is this, is, is just like, I'm just not feeling it. I'm not, I don't have the energy. I don't have the, like, sometimes you just feel fake. You know, you feel like I'm talking about the stuff and I'm not even sure about it. So, I mean, I only talk about stuff that I, I have at least a modicum of confidence about, right? Um, but, uh, but like, <laughs> There's less of that than there used to be. Um, so, you know, uh, a few years ago, I saw a talk from one of, one of my friends and colleagues, um, kind of a talk, like, um, looking into his past, you know, talking about, like, this old research that he hadn't really done in, in, in many years. He kind of moved on, and, you know, as, we, as many of us do, but he kind of had a retrospective examination of all the stuff he had done, and, like, he was standing behind this, and this is, like, you know, solid work, and I, I looked, and I thought to myself, like, I'm not going to have a, I'll never have a talk like that. 
Um, I mean, I mean, I shouldn't say that. I'll have it. I, I will at some point, like starting from 2012. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Life's not over yet. Yeah. But, you know, I, I worked for 15 years uh, before then. And I just don't feel good about that stuff. I don't want to, I don't want to throw like my collaborators under a bus and I don't want to like denigrate all the stuff that I've done in the past. I'm sure some of it is good. Um, but I just don't know anymore. And, 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 um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird place. It's a really, really weird place. Um, but like, you know, even me talking about it now, I feel like I, I, it's getting me down. Um, but the truth is, I'm in a much better place now. It's been like, you know, I've been sitting with this feeling for a few years and I've, I have moved on and we've changed practice, practice, uh, the, the way we conduct science, you know, radically. Um, so I feel way, way better about the stuff we're doing now. And I'm really, really proud of, of, of what we're doing now. So that's, you know, that's the positive. And I focus more on that these days. Yeah. So what's changed in your lab post crisis? Um, well, I mean, I think we, we've, uh, I think we just listen. We listen to what the critics say. Uh, we, we take it to heart. Um, so I'm a big consumer of open science. Um, and we, we try to adopt, I think we've tried to adopt almost every you know, recommended practice. So, um, you know, there's some, the low hanging fruit that are so easy, like posting data. Like, yeah, we do that as much as we, we do that, you know, for every study now going on. Like, and that's, we do that for selfish reasons. Right. It's just like I have people contact me asking for data for my first ever paper published in 2000. Like, I don't fucking know where that shit is. Like, literally, that stuff was run on paper and pencil. And like, uh, it's just it's funny. It's kind of funny. We, we uh, that first ever my first published studies on startup threat. And, you know, uh, uh, we give women and men a math test. Um, and for many years, people would just ask us for that math test. And, you know, I created this, the study was published in 2000, which means I probably ran it in 98. You know, there were computers around then, but for some reason, like the actual test was a paper test. It was a paper copy. I didn't have a digital version of the test. So I literally would photocopy the test and send it to people. Okay. But I've since lost that test. I don't, don't know where it is anymore. Um, and now, you know, open data, open materials, it's like, you know, Go find it. You know, yeah, you want the data. There it is. We have a data map for you. You can figure it out. So I don't no longer have to do that for you. So that's just a no brainer. I don't know why anyone would be reluctant to do that. Um, so that we do that. Um, the, I mean, the biggest one really is uh, the biggest mind change is pre-registration, right? So that's where you, um, you name your hypotheses. You, you can detail your analysis plan and there are degrees of, of pre-registration. Like, so some could just be simple hypotheses and some could be like literally giving the code. Um, when we started, it was very simple. Um, now we're, we're, we're more rigorous with our, our pre-registration. But, uh, so, and, and that has just changed the way I think about research. And it's not even like the badges of pre-registration. It's not like, you know, getting more credit or value signaling or anything of that nature. It keeps us honest with ourselves. That is the biggest change. Where, like, I just had an, uh, you know, this, this, uh, uh, this, an hypothesis that I really, really care about in our lab. We were running a study. Um, and, um, you know, we didn't confirm our results. And then we started exploring. We're like, oh, look, we get something here. We get something there. We get, something. like, we found a lot of interesting stuff in the data when we explored it. And I was telling my student, you know, 
this would be a published paper. Like in you know, a few years ago, we would have just taken the products of our exploration and said, look, we hypothesized this and here you go, world, uh, you know, and we try to submit it to, to, to some high impact journal. But I, I'm not going to allow that now. Now I'm going to be like, no, I think we're still exploring, we're still looking, and, I, and with this particular data set, there's a lot of cool things there. So I, I, I think and hope there's, you know, there's a replicable phenomenon. Um, but now we're going to we're doing an exact replication to make sure we're actually on the right track. Um, so it's you know we've added a layer, we've added like this this layer of protection. Really, I see this protection for us. So I I want the studies that I you know, publish to be replicable. I, that's my goal. I want them to be solid. Um, and I won't accept less than that. So, um, so yeah, so that's the big, I think that's the biggest kind of, uh, it's not so much a, a change in procedures, although it is, it's a change in the way we think about analysis. Um, and that, that has been great. And I, and I'm, I feel much better. I feel, uh, yeah, like I said, I'm proud of, of the stuff we're doing now. But I want to hear about you. I mean, I, I didn't get a chance to hear about your own, you know, uh, like take on the field um, and your own experience. Like, how did you, clearly we're 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 we're, uh, we're thinking along similar lines about the state of the field. Um, but I'm sure you didn't think think this way, you know, before 2011. So what like what happened? Like what made you think this way? How did how did you get to where you are now? Yeah. Well. I mean, I was involved in the Stoppel thing was the main thing. And this is like, this is funny because it's, it's fraud, right? Which is not, which is not p-hacking. Um, but uh, I was at Tilburg, um, you know, when Diedrich was there. And I haven't talked about this publicly, but it's, it's not a secret. Um, I was one of the people who reported his kind of possibly fraudulent data to the university authorities. So like when I got there, uh, I was a new assistant professor. It was my first tenure track job. I started going to his lab meetings. He was at that time the uh, dean of the uh, School of Behavioral Sciences, so like pretty high up, but he was still very research active. And it was just like these results were just amazing. Like every time, every prediction was confirmed and like beautifully. Um, Wait, and, hold on. Hold on. Sorry. I want to probe this a little bit. So, so you're uh, an assistant professor, brand new, um, right. and he. Was he instrumental in hiring you at all, or, or no, that was unrelated? Well, he generally was pushing for a more international faculty. So this Tilburg is a school in the Netherlands. Um, they had historically mostly hired Dutch people, and he was really visionary in, in saying, you know, we need to have an international presence and we need to hire people from abroad. Okay, so, you know, it may, if not directly, indirectly responsible for you showing up. That's right. Um and uh, and then what? Within the, the first semester, you were you attended his lab meetings, and and this is what 2010 or yeah, this was 2010. Okay, yeah. And so even then, this is pre false positive psychology paper. This is pre P curve, uh, obviously pre stopple. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> so uh, so so what was it? What what made you think that what he was producing was too good to be true? Well, it just it looked too good to be true. It was the uh, like the perfectly as predicted means for every study, right? And not just like it mostly worked. It was like it was exactly as predicted every time. And then it turned out that the data were never collected at the university. So he had a hookup with some secondary schools, like 
equivalent to high schools in the U.S., where he claimed that the data was being collected, and like graduate students would give him the materials, and then his quote-unquote assistants at those schools would collect the data, and you would get an SPSS file back to analyze. And like every time in that lab meeting, it was like, we predicted this, and look. Mm -hmm. Look how exactly it turned out the way we predicted. I must admit, maybe I'm just too gullible, but I'm not sure my like spotty sense would have been tingling about that. I mean, I would have been probably just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> I would have just been like, God damn it, that Stoppel, he just like he just got good ideas. Yeah. Um and I remember, so I had a uh, I was friends, I mean I still am friends with um one of his uh postdocs at the time. And I remember him commenting to me, it's like, yeah, all our studies work. It's amazing. Every time they always work. And I'm like, fuck, man, like, I don't, what the fuck am I doing wrong? Yeah. Um, but anyway, so you, but you had the good sense uh, even back then. Well, you know, I've wondered about what that says about me as a person. <laughs> I was the person who was like, this can't be fucking right. Something, this guy is trying to get away with some shit, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so you were skeptical. I was, I was, I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the combination of it always works out as predicted and nobody sees the data collection. I mean, those two things were like, Whoa. Yeah, okay. So the latter thing, yeah, that second thing is like, why are you going to a high school? I mean, that's just weird. Also, I feel like I came from, so the Tom Gilovich lab, like, Tom is great. He has amazing intuitions. Like, and, and there, you know, more than half of the studies didn't work, right? So I feel like that's the best case scenario. Mm -hmm. Anyway, yeah, so, so I um, was suspicious. I talked to a couple of grad students that I trusted about my suspicions, and they, in turn, talked to other graduate students in the program. And many of those people had worked with Diedrich, and it turns out had had somewhat odd interactions. Um, so those students then tried to gather as much like kind of evidence as possible. Um, and I uh, proposed to Diedrich like a collaboration so that I could take a look at some of these data. So like I had an idea that I that I thought might actually work. But well, hold on, so this is legitimate idea, or this is no, a no, sting I, operation? No, well, <laughs> I don't know, a little of both, <laughs> I guess. I mean, I believed in the idea, mm. um, but also I wanted to see some of these data firsthand. So in the back of your mind, you're like, I I actually want to test this, but yeah, let's see this Diedrich guy. Let's see what the data look like, and so I delivered him some stimuli, and then around the beginning of 2011 he gave me back the data that had supposedly been collected and the data looked crazy and i remember the night that i was analyzing those data being like there is no way that these data are real okay so someone i want to like uh, unpack that a tiny bit um because i think there's a detail that you, that you skipped over i, I don't want to call stop a genius um maybe it's like an evil genius um so he did this thing where, you know, he didn't like go into data files and enter the data. What he did instead, I correct me if I'm wrong, um, is he completed these paper and pencil questionnaires and then gave it to his students, or in this case, to an assistant professor, or am I incorrect here? I think he actually just typed it into SPSS. Okay. Yeah. He had the questionnaires made, and then he just like chucked them in the garbage. I see. Okay. There's a memorable part of this book where, like, the stimuli for one study were like M and M's, and he just like sat in his car and ate all the M and M's. So I disposed of the evidence. That's hilarious. Okay, but okay, so okay, so he didn't have you enter the data, but he entered the data for you, mm -hmm. but he didn't like give you the results. 
You analyzed it yourself. That's right. So you are dis- you're the one discovering it. That's right. Not him. Yeah. 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 So in some cases where he collaborated with senior people, I believe that he just made up like means and SDs. Mm-hmm. But when he collaborated with um, more junior people, he would just send them an SPSS data file. And I think that his ML for the most part was just, just type values in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, okay. So you saw, so going back to the story. So you saw the results. Why, why, did you, why were you skeptical? Why do you think this is insane? So... I don't want to get too in the weeds of like these specific measures, but basically there was a measure that was supposed to be a mediator and it was a beautiful mediator that correlated with a DV at like, I don't know, like 0.6.7. Basically this, uh, this mediator social value orientation consists of asking the people the same question, like phrased differently, like nine times. So you'd expect high internal consistency. And it turns out that the internal consistency of this measure was garbage was terrible. So basically it correlated with the thing that it was supposed to predict more highly than it correlated with itself. And there's just no way, as far as I can tell, that that can happen with real data. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. So he was... He wasn't smart enough, in other words. So he, he, you know, he, he was looking to maximize, you know, the effect of the mediation, but not realizing that, oh, of course, you also need the measure itself to be reliable. He was trying to produce a mean, mm-hmm. and there's, I, I forget how many questions go into the mean, let's say five. He would just type values those into those five columns to get the right mean, right? I see. Without any uh, uh, consideration of, like, how the correlation between the individual items would look. Yes. Yeah. So like he was not a good data thinker actually at all. Mm-hmm. He did this in the most naive and honestly labor intensive possible <laughs> way of like manually <laughs> typing this stuff in. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Actually, it, it seemed like there'd be a lot, be not that hard to do mm-hmm. to fake. Right. You know, simulate some data uh, around a mean. Right. Yeah. Um, so have you, certain properties. Right. That's one way to do it. Another yeah. way to do it is to actually run the study and then move people between conditions. You have to um, run the study, dude. That's so inefficient. That, well, yeah. Okay. Yeah, you have to pay to run the study. That's true. <laughs> Trying to maximize here, man. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, so okay. So you, you got the data. Yeah. Um, and then what? So that's when I was convinced, um, and I told the two students, "I'm convinced at this point," but we didn't feel we had enough. Um, and from then on, it was really the students who were doing the work. So they collected a ton of correspondence, data files, et cetera, from other people who had had interactions with him. And it wasn't until the summer that we felt confident enough to go forward because we were like, if we're going to accuse somebody of this, like we have to have ironclad evidence. So we put together like a little dossier. um, And uh, one of my students actually had found some incredibly damning stuff in these data files, like basically rows that were repeated. Um, so he had just kind of copy-pasted them. Oh, he got lazy. He got real lazy. Yeah, because it's a pain to type in all those numbers, right? Oh, right? Man. Copy Finger, finger strokes, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your fingers cramp. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so anyway, we had what I thought was a very compelling dossier. We took that first to the head of our department and then to the school administration. After that, things moved very quickly, you know, so they they handled it as well as you could expect them to handle it, um, especially given the fallout for the school and for the students. I mean, it really... A dean. I mean, a dean to yeah. be sacked. Yep. But hold on. So, uh, uh, what was the approximate timeline uh, between you putting the dos- dossier together to and sending it to the, the higher ups, and then action being taken? So, it was a matter of like less than a week. Wow. Yeah. 
Yeah, so the students talked to the head of our department while they were all together at a conference, and the head of our department tried to like mediate between us and Diedrich and suggested that we all sit down, and, and we said no. Um, and then uh, awkward. That would have been super awkward. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, "It's not gonna. There's no productive outcome of that." And mm-hmm. he was like, "Okay, then we go to basically the equivalent of the provost, um, who took this very seriously, and you know, took uh, met with all of us, took it to Diedrich, and Diedrich confessed, like in a matter of a day or two, right? Because like he he lied about all the stuff that once you push on it, like he can't back up, right? Where are the schools where you collected the data? He can't." He can't point to them. Yeah. So, right? So, the this is sort of lies. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what that takes is like for the administration to be like, I demand that you document and document how you collected this stuff, right? So, that's not I'm in a position that I'm in with like J random person that I suspect of making up their data, right? Mm-hmm. I can't, I can't push on them in that way. And mm-hmm. just from the data themselves, you can have strong suspicions, but you can't prove a damn thing. Well, Yuri Simonson can because he's much smarter than I am, but, but I can't. <laughs> um, what do you think? I'm surprised by that that week. That that seems lightning fast. That that to me, that's not how universities operate. Yeah. So, what do you think would happen? Would have happened if Diedrich was working in, uh, you know, not the name, you know, University of Michigan or uh, wherever, someplace in North America? Um, do you think? Do you think the same thing would have happened? I think they would have eased him out quietly. Eased him out quietly. Yeah, exactly. Like, pressured him to resign. Um, Maybe given him some money to quit. I don't know exactly what happens to... You know, there have been a couple cases in the U.S. where people have been very credibly accused of making up data. And I think for the most part, the university tries to just get it to go away. But even those cases, were they were they as quick as that? Were they like a weak, decisive no, action? No, no, absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a real difference, right? I think yeah. I, I think the uh, the way Tilburg handled it with like so much integrity, right? I mean, like a credible accusation, um, you know, doing due diligence, not like, you know, not accusing and, and, and firing someone without actually, you know, vetting the information. Um, but doing their due diligence and then taking decisive action. I think, I, I don't know, I feel in North America we're, um, so, we're so protective. Like universities are protective of their brand. Um, you know, of, you know, God forbid, like, you know, uh, like the rankings get affected by, you know, from some fraudster being caught. Um, I, I don't know. I, I think, it, you know, even here at U of T, I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I love where we work. Um, I don't, I don't think it would be handled in this way. So I mean, that's I, mean, I think that's something like to, to, to you know that's a really uh, praiseworthy. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think it speaks to the general integrity of the Dutch that uh, the first thought of the university administration was, um, how do we find out what's true here and take appropriate action, rather than how do we try to get out of this with the university looking as good as possible. Right. So one so one orientation is let's do good. And the other orientation is how do we protect our asses? That's right. That's yeah. right. And I, I detected zero ass covering. So like they took us seriously. They brought in like a blue ribbon committee. Nice, Mickey. Real. Coasters. Nice. We're almost done with this. Yeah, it is hitting you. I don't know if I should let you get on the bike, man. Anyway. Um, yeah, they handled it as well as you could expect. And it's... Uh, to their credit, and I, I'm, I continue to be so impressed with them. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, okay, so 
I mean, that's an amazing story. So, and 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 you never actually shared that publicly before. No, no, not that. So it's you brought Stopple down. I mean, and with with many people, but I mean, you is is it correct to say you initiated this? Yes. Wow, dude, like you should be given like a medal or something. It was a group effort, but you initiated. Like if if you had not pushed, um, it's likely that that's right. Happen? That's right. We were all necessary, but no one of us was sufficient. Dude, if I was the chair of the department, I'd give you tenure right now, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. <laughs> you, uh, you can write that in your letter. <laughs> um, okay, so, you know, we started this really interesting story um, by me asking you what led you to kind of, what was your conversion experience? Like, what led you to, like, have doubts? And, okay, so I understand, like, you know, you have doubts because you, you, you caught this massive case of fraud. Um I don't know, but to me, it still feels qualitatively different uh, than you know, garden variety pea hacking, which I think is far more common. And I also think because it's more common, it's much more destructive. So I assume that you're you're also skeptical of, of, of the literature, not just because of the fraud, because of the other stuff. So was there a moment or that just kind of like, you know, the possibility of there being shit out there led you to then have doubt about everything else. Yeah, there's not like a moment that I can point to in the same way where I was like, here's the like precipitating event that happened and uh, this is what changed my mind. It was more like, I think what many of us experienced, kind of like a slow realization that the things that we thought were reliable might not be. Um, so you talked a bit about how your research practices have changed in the lab. And like, I think we're doing many of the, the same things in mine. I've also noticed in my research, like I've just relied much less on experiments in general. So I still publish some experiments, um, just like classic between subjects experiments, but they're typically things where the manipulation is like a real kind of like sledgehammer type thing. Right. And, uh, I've moved much more into, you know, basically like personality psychology, you know, like a lot of my work on disgust, for example, looks at disgust sensitivity and how that relates to various attitudes and just a more descriptive work. Like, how do people feel about X, Y and Z? Right. Like, can we find some sort of like interesting regularities there? And none of those are the kind of classic social psych, small manipulation has big effects on behavior kind of studies. Mm -hmm. Is it was that a uh, an explicit decision or just kind of like you just that was what you, the, the research led? I think it was just naturally like partly it was just what I happened to be interested in, and partly it was like I just don't believe that like a priming study is going to work. Mm -hmm. You know, like why why would I bother running it if I don't think it's going to work? Right, and I, guess, I suppose yeah. I mean, many questions can't be answered uh, without an experiment. You know, experimental questions can't be answered without that manipulation there. So in a way, priming um, opened the doors for many possible experiments that wouldn't have existed previous. And now if we, like ego depletion, many of us doubt, you know, the effects of certain forms of priming. Um, you know, if you, ha you still are interested in those same kinds of questions, the way they address them is observational or... Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, descriptive, not necessarily, you know, you know, perturbing the system and looking to see what the effects are. Right. I think we have to grapple with the fact that there's some questions that we're just not going to be able to answer in a good way because our uh, methods aren't adequate to it, um, because we don't 
uh, have a, a way to like run enough people to get adequate power um, for the kind of manipulation that we want to do, for example. And that's just something that we have to live with, right? Like the world is what it is, regardless of like how you'd like it to be or what would be convenient for you as a researcher. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point. So uh, as you're talking about this, I was thinking about one specific example, um, uh, which is the example of, um, so for, for not for very long, uh, I was interested in, actually, I'm still interested in the psychology of religion. I think it's a fascinating topic. Um, given how many, how what percentage of the planet is religious. Um, and, there, you know, I dabbled in this for a little bit. And uh, there was some prominent work out there um, examining uh, the, the effects of religion on whatever. It doesn't matter what the outcome variable is. Um, but one would think, well, the only way one can study this is observationally. Well, you look at people who are more or less religious and look at some outcome and, you know, yes, you can't necessarily draw, you know, uh, causal conclusions, but you can, through appropriate controls, maybe you can approach that. Um, but the studies that I had seen were using primes, like actually priming religiosity and then seeing these downstream effects, right? And now it's like with... with, with you know, the problems with priming and, and religious priming even specifically, you're like, oh, God, I don't, yeah. I don't think you can study. I don't think you can study, you know, causal effects of religion. You can look at observational um, and longitudinal studies. So you can, you can approach uh, causality, uh, but you need other methods, not experimentation. And, and I think, yeah, I think it's, 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 it's um, again, praiseworthy that you're, uh, you know, you're letting the, you're asking the questions and the methods decide themselves based on the questions you have. Yeah, I think one consequence of thinking that way is that we have to get much better about methods. Because if you can just do the priming study, you just do the like, you know, ANOVA or whatever, you don't need any fancy stats to do it. Why do economists need fancy stats? Why do personality psychologists need fancy stats? It's because they deal with correlational data and they're trying to make causal inferences, right? So it's tough and you need a lot of methodological sophistication to even approach the inferences that you can make from an experiment. So like the experiment is better, but now we're like, well, maybe those experiments are BS, right? <laughs> so so the I what I was taught in grad school was like if you can't an analyze it using an ANOVA, you like designed it wrong. And that's <laughs> that is over. <laughs> there are people who are shaking their heads at that comment. Mm -hmm. Um that's yeah that's I mean so I must admit that's not a change I've necessarily made. Um I've still I don't want to say stuck in the experimental paradigm. Um, so we do a, we do a lot more experience sampling now, which is you know essentially a correlational method. Uh, but it's got you know this um, has some kind of quasi longitudinal component. Um, but yeah, it's still correlational. You can't you can't draw inferences about uh, you can't make ca causal claims necessarily. Well, on the other hand, when when you do within subjects designs, which I know you've been doing more of that inherently makes your analyses more complicated because you have to account for uh, the relationship between repeated observations from individuals. So often that ends up meaning a mixed model, right? So that's already much more sophisticated than anything that we uh, were taught in, in grad school. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I've, I think almost all of our studies now are either completely within subject or at least mixed. Um, yeah, it, it involves knowing... A whole series of different inferential tools. Yeah, I wasn't taught that. 
um, to teach it myself, and now, now my students teach me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is uh, a fun experience. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so, so that like I, I think that's real. Like I don't think you should discount that. Like that is an entirely different way of analyzing your data, um, and it's a, a more like difficult and complicated way. No question compared to like a t-test or whatever. Yeah. I long for those days. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful. <laughs> so easy. <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Yeah, but maybe we're, we were fooling ourselves all along. It was, like, yeah, it was easy because it was bullshit. <laughs> yeah. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm like, I'm almost done. I'm beer and a half in bar right now. Beer and a half in bar. Well, do you think you can do like three large gulps and just finish her I off? I feel like I don't want to do that. I feel like this <laughs> beer should be savored and enjoyed. We're just going to have to, our listeners will have to trust me that I'm planning to finish this in the next 15 minutes. And and just to assure our listeners, uh, what are we doing after this? Mm. We're going to go drink more. <laughs>